This weekend, we celebrate the ascension of our resurrected Lord to the right hand of the Father. And there are many themes that we can draw from this event in the life of our Lord and his apostles. But it occurs, of course, in the weeks between Easter Sunday and Pentecost, in which we call to reflect on the meaning of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The ascension has no meaning apart from the resurrection of Jesus. And in 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul addressed the question of the importance of the resurrection, particularly how the resurrection of Christ changed his life and therefore should change ours. Well, this is what we'll talk about today on Deep in Scripture. Hello, thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. This is your host, Marcus Grodi, and I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. Uh, I'm in Ohio, he's in Illinois, uh, and we're joined on the... uh, and this amazing gift we have from God called technology, which can, uh, I'm not sure we in modern days have the maturity to use technology the way we're supposed to, but Lord, please <laughs> guide us in what we're doing today. Uh, yeah. and we have no other desire than to honor him and his word as we, uh, by grace, hopefully, are uh, can dig deeper into it to find out what he's speaking to us, calling us to live Uh, more obediently to him. Uh, We'd love for you listening to be connected with us on Deep in Scripture. So please remember that the website, deepinscripture.com, you can connect with archived programs. You can send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. You can find that at deepinscripture.com. Or subscribe to us, the CH Network Facebook page or a Twitter at CH Network. All kinds of technology, Ken, that wasn't around when you and I were in seminary, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't yeah. even have a laptop when I was in seminary, but that you know, I only had an abacus. It was that long ago. I don't think but, they existed. <laughs> <laughs> right. <clears throat> but I mentioned in the opening that you know here we are this weekend is Ascension. And like everything else in our faith, the Ascension makes no sense whatsoever apart from the resurrection of Jesus. Mm, and what we're focusing yeah. on as we continue our study of 1 Corinthians is the absolute centrality and importance for our faith of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And maybe as a context, we're going to look today at verses 23 through 28, but Ken, maybe as you know, bring us up to date in terms of a background con- context for our passage for any listener that hasn't heard us, uh, verse 19 summarizes what Paul was saying up until this passage that we're going to look at. And he said, if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all men most to be pitied. I think it's really interesting the way that Paul puts this. He says, if if our hope is only in this life, we are most to be pitied. Well, you might ask the question, well, what's wrong with having hope in this life? And uh, the answer is, um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's good to have hope in this life. But the problem is, how are we going to get to God? And so Paul is trying to bring us back to the very central truth that the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the coming again of our Lord, all of that is about ultimately being with God. That's why he says that we're more to be pitied than all men if it isn't true that Christ is alive. In the context that we've studied so far in past weeks, uh, Marcus, we, we studied how what a, tr- a great transformation took place in the Apostle Paul's life 
as he calls himself the least of the apostles, is not worthy to be called an apostle, and yet by the grace of God, he is what he is. He became an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, and he did that because he believed that Jesus Christ was, in fact, risen from the dead. So those that were in Corinth who were uh, doubting this or questioning this or perhaps even saying that, well, that was a spiritual resurrection that took place, Paul is coming back to this central fact that historically, factually, physically, corporally, however you want to say it, if Christ is not risen from the dead, then this is this whole Christian movement, this whole message, this whole church is worthless. Later on in this passage in verse 32, uh, part B, Paul says, If the dead are not raised, let us eat and, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And Ken, you know, that reminds me, I think I mentioned last time we were on, I apologize to the audience, I was sick last week, so we had to play an uh, earlier program, but a couple weeks ago, uh, I think I mentioned a, a writer that I've been reading who's a fairly well, well-known writer in the sustainable farming, Mother Earth news, back to the earth, uh, simple life and all that, that's well and good, and, and but his view of life is... Listen, there's no beginning to life, there's no end to life. When I die, I'm going to become fertilizer. So be rejoice and be glad in it, kind of an attitude. <laughs> and uh, and you know, that first verse that you addressed there, Ken, in verse 19, <clears throat> if for this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are fools. Yeah. Essentially, yeah. And, and that's because, Ken, Jesus makes demands on our lives. People, good Christian men and women who believe in the once saved, always saved mentality can sometimes delude themselves into thinking, I've accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior on June 5th, 1947, and therefore I know when I die, I'll go to heaven without without blinking. And I, but, but yet miss the fact that the life we are called to live in obedience to that faith, in obedience to the resurrection, requires suffering, requires sacrifice, requires letting go of things, requires of denying ourselves of eat and drink for tomorrow, we, you know, this, this rejoicing and who cares. We are called to live in imitation of Jesus. And to me, that's why he says, if, if there's no resurrection, then living with these constraints on our lives is stupid, right? Mm-hmm. Ken, I mean, if, right, if, yeah. if we don't, if we're not accountable for eternity to how we live, then who cares how we live? But here's the irony of it all, Marcus: is when he says he quotes from, uh, it's either an Old Testament text or he may be actually quoting from a, a Greek poet. He says, uh, "Let us eat, we drink, we eat, we eat, we drink, for tomorrow we die." The fact is that people that have lived that way have ended up miserable at the end of their lives. But people who have lived uh, sacrificially for others, uh, even if they didn't believe in God, if they lived sacrificially for others, if they lived for a higher cause, maybe the cause of their country, and especially people that have lived for the highest cause of all, for the honor and glory of God, these are people that turn out to be happy at the end of their lives. And they certainly have endured suffering. I think of the great saint, a young saint, St. Therese of Lisieux, who died at 24 years of age. Uh, she died in such an agony and pain because she had tuberculosis. 
or as they used to call it, consumption. It was consuming her body. But there was a supernatural grace that was given to her. And yet she didn't she didn't live according to verse 32, eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow I'm going to die. And that's how they was do it. And I become fertilizer. No, she lived for a higher cause. And yet there was a deep peace and happiness about that. And, you know, if I can think, you know, if I speak maybe in, you might call it selfish terms, quote unquote, um, I'd rather be a suffering Christian than a eat, drink, and marry for tomorrow we die kind of guy, precisely because I know it makes me a lot happier. Yeah. Plus, you bought into Pascal's wager, but we won't go there. But uh, yeah, that's right. Ken, have you ever seen the movie Inside Great Silence? Have you heard of that? Movie? Oh, in, in, into, into into Great Silence about the about the uh, Cistercian monks. I mean, that's or to me Carthusians. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's an amazing movie of two and a half hours. It's, you're sitting there watching the silence of these men, but when you hear their testimony, it's of great joy. Well, you know, I, when I watched that movie for the first time. You say it's about, it's about two hours. The first hour, I was sitting here antsy, and I, okay, so when are we going to get on with this? You know, and then finally, finally, I got the message, and I could see in their lives this deep and abiding joy when they were living in silence. You know, because yeah. the Carthusians are the most uh, uh, secluded order of all those in the church. And you could just see the joy radiating from them. And the know. reason I brought that up is thinking about what we're looking at here is that we, when you see the lives of those men who've they've chosen celibacy, but not only that, they're living in these sparse rooms with nothing but a bed. And it's, a very, it, it's not one of these fancy new soft beds. It's just a little bed yeah. uh, with a, a prey-do and an altar and then a window and a table and a chair. And that's it. And, you know, if Jesus has not been raised, then all those sacrifices they've made, all that neglecting of all the other stuff that this world has to give, they're fools. If, oh, absolutely. That's the point of, of Paul, is right. that if Jesus has not been raised. And so with that, building that case, he then moves on to... On the other hand, and let me read, Ken, verse 20 through 28, and then uh, reflect on this, the important theology behind this passage, because Paul says, but, and there's the great, you know, the, the change in the current of his discussion, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And that itself is, when I, I'm backing off again from the text, but, you know, there's Paul proclaiming the complete truth that has changed everything for his life. In fact, in today's, well, the readings, it wouldn't be today, back in, on uh, Wednesday, St. Leo the Great's reading in the, in the morning reading of uh, Daily Office, he emphasizes all the great things that have changed in the life of the world between the, the resurrection and the ascension of our Lord. And one of them was this complete re-understanding of life the complete yeah. realization that life goes on because of the resurrection. So Paul goes on, excuse me, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For us, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming those who belong to Christ. 
Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to destroy it is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection under him, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things under him, that God may be everything to everyone. Well, there's a beautiful uh, bracket. I must say, as you're reading that text, uh, it really excited me to hear these words again because there's kind of a bracket here, Marcus. In verse 20, as you rightly emphasized, he says, but in fact, and literally it's but now. In other words, yes, we would be pitied above all men if Christ weren't raised. But in fact, the case is, yes, he is raised from the dead. But then notice in verse 28, when he says about the being subjected, everything being subjected to God, he says the purpose of it, the very end of verse 28 is what? That God may be everything, it says, in all things. God may be all in all. That really states the goal of God's creation of the universe, his redemption of the human race, and in fact, his redemption of the universe, is that God may be all in all. In other words, God may be the very meaning of everything in the universe, and that will be true for every last single thing that was ever created. Can, That's why this that declaration is so beautiful. Christ is risen from the dead. Just a reflection on what you just said. Bonaventure, the theology of St. Bonaventure, in his, especially his, his little book, Journey of the Mind to God, recognizes that to draw closer to God, to begin the journey of growing close to God, we begin by recognizing what Paul says right here, that God is in everything. In other words, not mm-hmm. at a pantheistic perspective, but recognizing that God, the salvation, the, the, the redemption of God uh, as a result of what Christ did in his resurrection and now his ascension has now changed everything. And that yeah. by looking at creation and seeing the vestiges of God present in a leaf, in a sparrow, in a, in a worm, yeah. in all that, and we see God in it, it draws us all the way back to him. It, it helps us appreciate and humbles us to see yeah. what Christ, it's all in him, as he's been saying throughout this passage. Well, you're, you're, you're so right. The, in fact, I'd encourage our listeners to... Uh, seek out on the internet. There is a good translation of the journey of the mind to God by Saint Bonaventure, and you're right. It's it's a wonderful uh, treatise about how we use creation to ascend up to God. And when you mention that because of Christ's death and resurrection, everything is changed, Paul hints at that when he says that now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. He doesn't say of the dead. He says of those that are sleeping. Now, I only, in fact, in the last few years realized that, I don't know why I didn't realize this, but the Greek word for cemetery is a koimeterion, and a koimao, koimao means to sleep in Greek, and a koimeterion is a place where you sleep. So it's the first fruits of those that are asleep. So the word, in fact, cemetery didn't really exist prior to Christianity. And in other words, they like your 
friend who said, well, you know, it become fertilizer. That was their hope. But in Christ, we know that what's happening is that our bodies are, quote unquote, sleeping. While our souls are with God, our bodies are sleeping in the grave until that great day of resurrection that Paul goes on to speak about uh, in verse 23 when he says that we're each in his own order. First, it's Christ and then those who belong to Christ. I just happened to see on a TV show the other night. I can't remember what one it was, but the the, the character, uh, it might have been Law and Order, you know, but uh, the character was talking about, they were walking through a cemetery, and, the, and the, the man was talking about how he loved cemeteries. And the other guy says, why do you love cemeteries? He says, well, when I was a child, my grandparents would take our whole family down once a year with a picnic to into the cemetery, oh, yeah. and we would go to the graves of our great grandparents who had been the ones who came from Europe, the, the old country, mm-hmm. to here, and they would commune with their great-grandparents, and then they would spread out the sheet and have a family picnic. And his mm-hmm. partner said, you mean you had a picnic on their grave? And he says, well, would you want us to have a picnic on other people's graves? <laughs> <laughs> That's good. But, but to me, which we've lost today... But there was the sense of their sleeping. Yeah, that's right. Well, that that goes back actually. The 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 um, the Romans prior to the Christians used to do that too. They used to have picnics out in the out in the graveyards that they had, even though they didn't believe in the resurrection, uh, because they wanted to be close to their family. But in but with Christ, that takes on a new meaning. Yeah, where there's still a communion between heaven. Uh, heaven and earth. And we know, for example, I've, I've translated a very uh, famous homily by St. John Chrysostom in the in the uh, late 4th century in Antioch, and it's called the Cemetery and the Cross. And on Good Friday, the people of Antioch would go out to the, cem- the Christian cemetery, and they would celebrate Mass on the tombs out there in the cemetery, and because they believed in this the communion with between heaven and earth. Ken, verse 21 and 22, uh, Paul shows a direct logical comparison between Adam and Christ. And it seems that there he's he's dipping back into what he also did in Romans when he makes this comparison between the first Adam and the second Adam. Talk about that as the foundation to what he's trying to get out in the power of the resurrection. Well, as you point us to in Romans 5, um, Paul mentions there, says there and develops the idea that Adam is the one who brought us into the state of sin, into death, and Christ is the one who brings us peace and grace and life and all of those things. So this parallelism between Adam and Christ is that Adam is the father, the head, the representative head of all humanity. Christ is the representative head of the new humanity. Adam brings death, but Christ brings life. Now, in this particular two verses, you'll notice how he says twice, it was through a man that death came. And then he says it was through a man that the resurrection of the dead came. He's trying to emphasize the true humanity of Christ, I think, because it would be easy for people to believe in kind of a spiritualized Christianity. And in fact, um, a couple of years ago, I was talking with a man who belongs to a particular Presbyterian church here in in uh, central Illinois, 
And uh, it was just after Easter. And the man said that his pastor said something to the effect, well, I'm not really sure I believe in the resurrection, but the important thing is that as a spiritual truth of new life, you know, <laughs> I thought, well, well, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you a pastor of a church? Yeah, he you must know? be a Boltmanian. I suppose, or something, something like that, or worse. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, but Paul is emphasizing the fact that Christ was no just divine spirit, and in fact, given that the Corinthians were were Gentiles uh, largely, that they lived in this uh, Greco-Roman culture, um, it would not have been strange for them to think of the gods coming down to be with men, you know, and to to consort with men. So he emphasizes. That Christ did not raise, did not rise from the dead only as God, but as a man, he rose from the dead. So that that means that we who are men, as human beings, we too can share in that resurrection, just as we share in Adam's horrible state of original sin. So we can share in the resurrection as well. Well, Ken, I know you never did this, uh, but I knew that as a pastor as I was preaching through certain books of the New Testament, there sometimes I would encounter passages that I wanted to read through really quickly and avoid uh, for a variety of reasons, either because I didn't think of myself theologically astute enough to deal with the issues or because I certainly did know the issues and didn't want to deal with them. I just wanted to get beyond <laughs> them into something else simple because verse 22 has some theology challenges to us. I know that in the recent um, changes in the mass. There was a very minor change from the word all to the word many. Mm-hmm. And this issue comes out in verse 22 when we try and understand it. And again, you know, more, far more than I do historically, theologically, the battles that have divided Christians over who did Christ die for Yes, and right. was his one death on the cross and resurrection and ascension sufficient for the salvation of all or for many or for a few or for the elect or for the chosen or the predestined or the foreordained? Because Paul says in verse 22, he's making this logical argument where on the one hand he says, for as in Christ all die, or Adam then the alternament, alternative is so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Yeah, which yeah. seems to imply that Christ has now saved everyone. Mm-hmm. Well, before we hit that, just to make yep. a, just a remark about the, the wording of the Mass, where it says that it before uh, he gave his life a redemption for many. It says that in Mark 10.45, and I think that's why they went back. The Latin does say pro multis. It doesn't say pro omnibus. So instead of translate, so when they translated it back in the 70s in the uh, ISIL translation, the International Commission for English and the Liturgy, when they translated it, they translated it all. They weren't really translating it as accurately as they could have been. So when they've gone back, they've translated it Latin pro multis and the corresponding Greek is the same in Mark ten forty five, that he says the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, um, many many of course in in any language doesn't mean the same as all. So I think the question you're asking is, 
Does verse 22 mean that all are going to be saved in Christ, all human beings, the same way that all are in Adam? Well, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a couple of ways to look at this. Uh, one is to see that all who were in Adam are are have received the um, the results of his original sin, of his uh, ancestral sin, as it were. And in the same way, those that are in Christ. Now, who is in Christ? Well, we know that those are in Christ from other New Testament texts, those that are baptized in his name, those that belong to him and serve him. Um, is there any sense in which all humanity is also in Christ? Well, I suppose you could say that he brought our human nature into himself, and St. Athanasius talks about this in the in the fourth century, so that by the incarnation, by taking on our human nature, all human beings were drawn into Christ. And the church has clearly said that when Christ died upon the cross, he paid for the sins of all human beings. Yep. And that was very particularly difficult for me because I was a Calvinist. Yep. And the Calvinist made this distinction by saying, yeah, well, he, his death was sufficient for all, but it wasn't effective for all. Well, in one sense, that could be true in the sense that those that are going to be in hell, uh, it didn't it didn't cover their sins, but it has the potential of covering their sins because precisely because uh, he intended it to pay for their sins. The the heresy of Calvinism is to say that God didn't intend to save those people, whereas the Catholic Church and probably and many other groups would say that. Uh, that in fact, yes, God intended to save all who wished to be saved. So I think there's different ways to understand this, but but basically what, what it's saying is that in order to be saved, in order to be made alive, one must be in Christ. Yeah, the it's the mystery of the both and in in my mm -hmm. mind. You know, as Calvinists we got caught up into either or. It's either yeah, the sovereignty true. of God or or the freedom of man. They aren't both at the same yeah. time. And so that's why we, we stuck with something like uh, limited atonement because we're trying to understand how is it that God's salvation was sufficient for all, yet some weren't saved. So how do you deal with that? So we, had, we were caught in the either or. But the mystery of the both and helps us recognize God's great gift to everyone, yet at the same time, our responsibility to willfully choose him, which we only do by grace. We can talk more about that, Ken, after the break. You're listening to Deep in Scripture. I'm Marcus Grodi, joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell, coming to you from the Coming Home Network International. Be with you in a moment. Dr. Kenneth Howell has two wonderful books on the early church fathers, translations from the Greek, as well as commentaries. His first book is on Ignatius of Antioch and Polycarp of Smyrna. They were two of the greatest leaders of Christianity in the first half of the second century. The second book is on the letter to the Corinthians by Clement of Rome and the Didache. These were two of the most important documents from the earliest days of the church. For Christians today, these earliest writings harken back to a time when the unity of faith and morals was a cherished gift and goal among professing believers. No Christian can remain unchallenged and unchanged while reading and absorbing these writings. If you are interested in these books by Dr. Kenneth Howell or purchasing them, 
go to the store link at chnetwork.org. Thank you. Don't forget to watch the Journey Home program with Marcus Grodi on EWTN. Each week, Marcus meets new guests who have journeyed to the Catholic faith from many backgrounds. Be challenged and encouraged as they witness to how their love for the truth of Jesus Christ has brought them into full communion with the Catholic Church. That's the Journey Home program on EWTN, live on Monday evenings at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. We are a network of inquirers, converts, as well as lifelong Catholics helping one another grow closer to Jesus Christ. On our website, you'll find conversion stories, articles, and videos, as well as information about becoming a member and receiving our CH newsletter. Visit chnetwork.org or connect with us on Facebook or Twitter. Welcome back to Deep in Scripture. This is Marcus Grody, your host. I'm joined by Dr. Kenneth Howell. And again, you can contact us at www.deepinscripture.com or through chnetwork.org, our website. Send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And Ken, we're right in the middle of this passage. A couple things. Uh, you know, we we talked about that last patch because I think it is it is a struggle as we look at people in our life that aren't in Christ. Um, or mm-hmm. we've thought about people that have lived their whole existence and never heard the message of the gospel. And uh, you and I both know that different theologies have dealt with, well, what about the Indians, the, American, the Native Americans who never heard the gospel? What about them? And uh, as Calvinists, we had an answer for that. <laughs> it wasn't always very charitable. But uh, but I, th- I think, that what, to me, you know, when, I know we don't want to spend all our time on this, but it seems to me that what we're recognizing in here is this both and of the mercy as well as the justice of God, his, his love and humility, and that even before the, the death and resurrection of Christ, um, Jesus was speaking to them in the Sermon on the Mount about a call to holiness before his death and resurrection. And Christ would not have been doing that if they did not have the freedom to respond to it, and so well, it seems. Go ahead. It, it seems to me that that also that's confirmed by uh, several important stories of the Old Testament, which are precisely um, powerful because they're 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 so infrequent. So you have the story of Rahab, right, yep. who lives in Jericho, and she alone sees. God is the true Lord. Now, how did she do that? Well, we would say that to some degree by grace, but she responded and others didn't. And she yep. did that because of her the freedom of her will. Uh, also, uh, think of the story of Ruth, of course, right? Who's so devoted to her mother-in-law that she goes back with her to the uh, land of Judah and Bethlehem. And there she makes a new life for herself and becomes an ancestor of David, a pagan woman, a Moabitess. Yep. She becomes that precisely because she was, even though she too was affected by Adam's sin, she wasn't, uh, as it were, a, a, um, 
you know, a slave that couldn't couldn't obey God at all. She did, and those those examples are yep. there, precisely to show us uh, God's ability to overcome that, even prior to coming into Christ in the world. Yeah, I mean, it was the point is it's it's hard for us to deal with that broken, wounded nature. Yeah, uh, it's it not a yeah. depraved nature, as Luther said it, but a broken and and a, and a wounded nature. We're still in the image of God. It's tough. But by the death and resurrection of Christ and through the gift of grace and faith and hope and love, and then through baptism, we can be freed from that broken nature, though we still have the wound of concupiscence there that will Mm -hmm. draw us so that we're always under the temptation of the world and flesh and the devil to turn from Christ. But all we need to do is to turn. Uh, As it says in the Mass, only say the word and my soul will be healed. I mean, we, we can turn to him because of this yeah. great grace of his resurrection. Well, this is the great uh, message of the church and the message of our faith, that God is a God of mercy and that when you've messed up your life, that's not the end of the story. You know, I was thinking yesterday as I was praying in church, I thought, you know, somebody needs to write a book called uh, something like um, uh, The World Without Forgiveness, What Secularism Does to us yeah. is is not just that it gives us all the obviously evil stuff what secularism does is it it removes from the possibility of our lives real forgiveness real mercy real change and and becoming different people by the grace of god that's what paul's talking about here is that those in christ by virtue of that hope that they have of being raised with christ they too uh, can't have their lives changed. They can find the mercy of God in their daily lives. There was a movie called Castaway with Tom Hanks. A great, enjoyable movie. Great movie. Uh, I remember that, yes. Sir. Great movie. But there's one scene in there that, to me, defines the whole movie. And that's where he's found himself alone in this island where he'll be for many, many years. But not long after the crash, one of the pilots floats up dead onto the shore, his bloated dead body, and, and Tom Hanks drags him and buries him in the sand. And there's for a moment he's standing over the grave giving the impression that for a second he's going to say something of spiritual meaning but he looks at the grave shrugs his shoulders and walks away because the character that he's playing is not a man of faith he's got nothing to say he's got nothing to give you know i mean there's what you're talking about you know if you don't have what a every one of you listening if you have the gift of grace and the heart, the eyes of your heart have been opened to the reality of God, you are blessed. And we're called to be thankful for that because there are people around us that for whatever reason, whether it's the timing of God or their own stubbornness, we don't know, we don't point fingers, but they don't have that, like that character that just had nothing to say at the death of a friend. How grateful Mm -hmm. it is to know that as in this text we're looking at, that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. And then, Ken, maybe briefly before we go on to the reflective passages beginning for 29, 23 through 28 has so much theology there. But in many ways it addresses what's going to happen. You know, what happens after we die? Well, it tells us, Marcus, uh, he says in verse 24, for example, then comes the end and, and, and he, that is Christ, will deliver of the kingdom to God and Father. This is talking about the consummation of all of history, right? 
And what, and here's what he says. He says that then the kingdom will be complete. And that's why we pray uh, daily, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're praying for that day to come when the Lord will return. Sometimes I, I think we as Christians, I think we should just wait wait around until that day comes. But the prayer means that we should be praying for the consummation of the kingdom. And what will that involve? Well, notice in verse 24, it means the destruction of all rule and authority and power. This is, uh, this, these are talking about the evil powers, I think. In other words, though all those forces that oppose God are going to be destroyed. Everything is going to be brought into subjection. And here, uh, the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 110 and from Psalm 8. Now, those, by the way, were two of the most beloved psalms of the soldier prior to Jesus coming in the world. I remember reading a long, long treatise in German about Psalm 110 and how it was interpreted by the rabbis prior to prior to the coming of Christ, because the Psalm 110 is quoted so much within the New Testament. So he says in verse 25 that this is when he will place the enemies under his feet, right? And so there's this wonderful um, hope that whatever evil we experience in this world, it is in fact going to be destroyed when the kingdom of God comes to its full consummation. And that last enemy, he says, to be yeah. destroyed is death itself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we look to the time when our souls and bodies will be reunited and we'll stand with eternity in the presence, the beatific vision, uh, vision of God. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and all of this is possible because of the reality of what Christ did. Uh, and uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, Pope Leo had, had said in a sermon that in that time period, that, that little window in which we are now celebrating between Easter and Pentecost, this idea changed the world, changed yes, the thinking of how we view life, how we view death, how we view each other, how we to live together, all of that changed in the weeks we are in right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, it should change us. It should have implications on our lives. It seems to me that this is such a necessary message for the world we're living in right now. Because um, I think within our own country, the United States of America, in Europe, and and even in a wider uh, circle uh, internationally, um, there's so many things that could be reasons for despair or discouragement. Um, The forces of uh, radical Islam seem to be uh, at times gaining some upper hand. The forces of secularism within our own country, people that don't even recognize that they are secularist are promoting things that are ultimately going to destroy faith. Um, now, when they do that, uh, what this text reminds us of, though, is that the ultimate victory is God's. The ultimate victory belongs to him. And we, he's calling us to develop the virtue of hope and to place ourselves as you hinted at earlier, more deeply into Christ. You know, in verse 28, he says, when he subjects all things to him, um, then the Son himself will be subjected to the Father. Now, we believe as Catholic Christians that 
the father and the son are equal, but that's they're equal in their natures. Right? They have they share the same divine nature, but in terms of the what's called the economic order in the Trinity, the son is subjective, subjected to the father, and especially in becoming man, he takes us, he takes all creation back up to the Father so that, as it says in the verse in the end of verse 28, God may be everything and in every way and every case. I wanted to say that chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, the second half of Ephesians, is all about all right, Christ has established the church and through baptism and faith we are part of that church and we've been changed, we're new creatures, we're were adopted, but chapters four, five, and six are all about, okay, given that, now how do you live together? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. And that whole passage shows about the whole church as one unit, uh, but yet we are individuals within that church with unique gifts for the building up of the church, and that should affect every group within the church, whether it's marriage or the workplace and, and how we individually should live. That's a summary of chapters 4, 5, and 6. But right in the middle of all that whole thing is one sentence that a lot of people have a hard time figuring out whether it goes to the passage before or the passage after. I think it's, it, it talks about the entire living within the family. And that's chapter 5, verse 21, when Paul says, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's not just marriages. It's not just workplace, mm-hmm. master and slave. It's the whole, as you said, it's the economy of the church in imitation of the Trinity. Exactly. Exactly. Because the church is modeled on the Trinitary, on the Trinity. So that in the same we're all equal in our being. That is, the Pope is no more a Catholic than I am or you are, but he is the leader of the church. And we're not the leader in the church, so it's proper to be in subjection to him as the Holy Father is the spiritual leader um, of, of the Catholic Church. And that, and that as the church functions in that way, that is to say, in, in all of its parts, as you were outlining there, then the church can work harmoniously for the betterment of the members of the church and ultimately for the world. I was thinking about that. If, if we are all equal within the church, yet in the economy of the church, there is a structure. But yet, mm-hmm. it was beginning, I think, with Pope Gregory. He recognized that the Pope recognizes that that, that pyramid structure that we might think of of the hierarchy is really turned on its head when a Pope recognizes he is the servant of servants. Yeah, and so yeah. a Pope is the servant of his bishops, who are the servant of his priests, who are the servants of the laity. You know, and that's why it says that the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church. This whole thing is turned upside down. And so mm-hmm. even in the Trinity, there's an equality. There's a, a sense in which God the Father is indeed in that position, yet God the Father submits himself to the Son in mercy and humility and love, modeling well, this for I, us. As I hear you talk about that, it reminds me of something now, you know, if you look, in, in, and you and I have both lived long enough to see this in different organizations, well, this is true in the, in the church. Um, it's true in, in businesses. It's true in, uh, in uh, nonprofits. It's true in uh, universities. I certainly saw it there. And that is <coughs> how easy it is for people to lose a sense of the core mission. That is, to, you know, what, what is this really all about? 
and they get to dealing with the details of life, but they don't see the overall vision of what it is. And when people lose a sense of vision, then they lose a sense of purpose. Mm. What Paul's reminding us here is that this central truth of the resurrection keeps us focused on the mission. That's right. And as he had said earlier, if, if it isn't true, everything else loses its meaning. If it is true, then it, it begins impacting all aspects of our life. And he closes this, this particular section with three reflections, applications on the things he's been saying. Uh, the first one is a little complicated, right, Ken? And then yes, it uh, is. because there happened to be a practice going on at the time. Um, I mean, the question is, is Paul endorsing this practice? Is he trying to give a theological foundation to this practice that's in verse 29? Yeah, well, of course, this is the expression where it says that, then what will those do or baptized on behalf of the dead if, in fact, the dead are not raised? Um, and so the question is, well, were they baptizing people for the dead? Of course, the Mormons do this. Um, I don't know what in the world it means in their environment because they don't have any a sense of sacramental depth to their religion. But um, one Protestant theologian in commenting on this verse said, um, there's nobody that knows what this means. <laughs> and I think that's probably true. Uh, th there was some kind of practice going on here, whether it's proxy baptisms or whatever it was. But one thing is for certain, we find no extension of this practice in throughout the church. And that was true both in the, the Western Catholic and the Eastern Church. It was true and it was true in the Protestants. No one has ever continued this practice if in fact it was. But you're right in pointing to the fact that he's appealing to to make his point that the the dead have to be raised because what are you doing this practice for if if the dead are not raised? It makes no sense. I mean, there are, uh, the example of uh in the early book of Acts, where when the early church recognized that Christ is calling us to live in poverty, to not be attached to anything, and that mm. nothing is to be ours. And so, in obedience and great sincerity, the early church tried to live that way. Well, they very quickly learned that there are boundaries to that kind of uh, yeah. self-sacrifice. And for certain people, yeah. they can live that way, but that's not going to be the norm for the church. They tried it, but it did not become the norm. Well, here's right. an example of some people were trying something to live out a theology, but it did not become the norm for the church. Yeah, yeah. Just like women wearing uh, covers over their head. Now, frankly, I, I love seeing women in church with the, with the right. mantilla on their head, you know, the covers. One of my former students uh, wears it to church all the time, and I see her, and, and you know, she's lovely because she, she, she has this thing on her head, you know. But the point is that when Paul speaks about the covering of the head for women, that did not become really normative. It's certainly not theologically significant. But the next example is, yes. and that is where he says, but why are then we in danger? We're in danger every day. Why are we doing that? Why am I dying daily? Why did I fight the beast in Ephesus if there's no resurrection from the dead? It all makes no sense. And here he's talking about, of course, he's appealing to the personal peril that he's put himself in. It's all meaningless if there's no resurrection. Yeah, every one of us, if, and it's a big if here, if every one of us, if we are seriously living out our faith in our community, in our jobs, especially in this day and age, 
has a potential to experience peril. Right, Ken? I mean, if we truly are living out our faith, making choices and and, uh, uh, sometimes denying things that everybody else thinks is, is the right of everyone, then we could be experiencing peril if we take a stand. Maybe not the same mm-hmm. kind of peril that Paul and, and the followers were going to experience when they were uh, dragged before Caesar to demand who, whether Christ was Lord or Caesar was Lord. But if, in fact, the resurrection of Christ isn't true, then you might as well say Caesar was Lord. What difference does it make? Well, if you and I had been having this conversation, say, 50 years ago, it may have been a little bit more difficult to believe that the Christian, the committed Catholic, today is in peril. But uh, it seems to me that the last 25 years have shown us that that peril is much more of a a real threat than it used to be. Now, it's interesting that um, a friend of a friend of mine Professor Robert George is professor of a, um, philosophy, political philosophy at Princeton, and a very devout and knowledgeable, articulate Catholic philosopher. Uh, he recently gave a talk at a national prayer breakfast in which he talked about this very fact that being a Catholic Christian today is going to mean uh, some really serious uh, possibility of persecution and peril for you. And as Catholics... <clears throat> If you went back 200 years in this very country, it mm-hmm. meant living in peril to be a Catholic in the English colonies here in America. Yeah. Um, and the, the, the founding fathers of our country, Sam Adams, everyone assumes that the reason that they rebelled against the mother country in England was because of the Stamp Act, but Sam Adams is quoted as saying that he feared the Quebec Act more than he feared the Stamp Act. <laughs> because yeah. in 1774, the British Parliament uh, agreed that the Catholic faith could live uh, as an organization in French Canada. And so there was a bishop in Canada. And so the English colonies on the eastern shore of this continental United States feared that papism would be free to operate north and west and then trap the colonies. And that became one of the primary reasons for the American Revolution. The point being that that's for Catholics, but Christians too in fighting these battles, all Christians, not just Mm -hmm. Catholic Christians, but all Christians, living out our faith today in this culture that we presumed was positive for the Christians uh, can be a peril. Go ahead, well, there's, there's a couple of interesting um, words here that are very helpful. Now, in the RSV, I, I, I fear that's been translated a little bit too weakly. It says, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts in Ephesus? This is verse 32. But I think a better translation of that would be, if I battled with beasts in Ephesus in a hu- only in a human way. In other words, if mm. if his battle only had to do with human human beings going back and forth of one another. That is, to, we might translate that into a modern um, uh, dialect as saying, if we're only about politics, and this is what we have to remember, this, the battle for our country is not about politics. It's not about organizations. It's about the culture. 
and it's about, and we can't do that. As he says in Greek here, kata anthropon. He can't do it just according to man. He can't do it just by his own powers. He had to be supernaturally uh, empowered to fight those beasts in Ephesus. And in the same way, for us to fight the beast in America, in whatever form they may come, we have to have more than human power to do that. That's one of the reasons then why he reminds us in the last passages here, uh, if the dead are not raised, let us eat, drink, and for tomorrow we die. But he says, do not be deceived. Bad yeah. company ruins good morals. Come to your right mind and sin no more. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Yeah, yeah. It is so easy for us to be influenced by the culture. I'd, I don't know about, about you, but you know, after teaching in universities for many years, I can tell you there's an underlying assumption of things you can say and things you can't say, of hmm. uh, views you can hold or views you can't. I remember the chancellor of the University of Illinois where I taught for about uh, 12 years. I remember her giving a speech one time, and the guy next to me, who was a Catholic priest, he leans over to me and says, does she assume that we all agree with her? <laughs> she was she was speaking as if everybody believed this, you know. Yeah. And uh, I said, well, I, I, said, I hope not. Uh, but... Um, so the, the same thing here when he says, you know, bad manners, corrupt, um, corrupt good manners, or rather bad conversations, bad associations, we're all going to be influenced. And so what we have to first of all do is experience an inner transformation to be able to live, as it were, a little bit of distance away from that secularized culture that we're living in. In verse 34, quickly, Ken, come to your right mind and sin no more. Is there a sense in which he's also, whether you see it in the Greek, that first it, we have to come to the correct mind, correct thinking, and yeah. then act accordingly? Yeah. Yeah, I think what he's saying in the Greek actually says here, me hamartanate, is the Greek, and you remember from Greek yourself that here it could mean stop living in this sin. It doesn't necessarily mean don't sin in the sense of do some, don't do some action. It means uh, come to your senses, um, think about this, be vigilant, and abandon this life of sin. If I may appeal to one of the great theologians of our own day, Jim Caviezel, yep. <laughs> uh, where he says, uh, once you start sinning, you become very courageous. And that's true. The more we live in holiness and righteousness, we can become courageous people. All right. Thanks, Ken. Uh, next week on Deep in Scripture, we'll continue with our study in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be looking at chapter 15, verse 35 and on, talking about the nature of the resurrected body. And we'll look at what Paul says about that. And then what difference does that make for ourselves as we look to not only those that have passed, but as we look to our own journey onward beyond death into the presence of our Savior. So thank you for joining us on Deep in Scripture. Again, you can connect with us at deepinscripture.com. Send us an email at dis at chnetwork.org. And the main thing is, by the grace of God, we'll love one another in imitation of Christ. God bless you.